This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the mission of the Homeland Security and Defense Business Council? How does it work to build better engagement between industry and government? And what are some of the critical issues facing the Homeland Security enterprise? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Raphael Boris, President and CEO of the Homeland Security and Defense Business Council. Raphael, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here with you again. So, Raphael, perhaps we could start out by understanding the history and mission of the Homeland Security and Defense Business Council. What is it? You know, I like to go back sort of to that time post 9-11 and uh, remember when the department was created, there was no, this is the term that I like to use, there was no marketplace in place there to support what became Homeland Security. You know, one of my favorite stories of that time was at TSA, and this is prior to the creation of uh, DHS when they were Department of uh, Transportation, uh, the early imaging equipment at the airports for screening were actually pieces of equipment that came from the medical industry. So there, there was no marketplace for Homeland Security goods and services. And I think some very smart people realized that industry needed to sort of come together in a way that uh, perhaps uh, it made sense at the Defense Department with the Defense Industrial Board and other kinds of mechanisms where there's an established marketplace for the defense industry. So it had to be created. And I give a lot of credit to the founders of this organization who recognized they needed to do that. There were no Homeland Security divisions. There wasn't anything that we knew about Homeland Security in terms of what goods and services were going to be required in this new agency. So that's the genesis. That was where the, uh, the Homeland Security and Defense Business Council uh, started. How does the council support the mission of DHS? And where I want to go with this is um, by forging better engagement between government and industry. So how do you do it? Well, that's an important thing. And I want to step back for a moment because the, the mission of the council has been uh, to improve that relationship. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm getting a little ahead in the conversation, but, you know, where I'm coming from is, and I want to go back to this term marketplace. I want to make sure that there is a vibrant marketplace that is offering goods and services, solutions and solution pathways that benefit Homeland Security in this new iteration. Here we are 17 years later. So it's more, in my mind, it's more than just establishing a forum where industry and government communicate. 
it's really in part educational where industry gets to learn uh, in a much more substantive, deeper way what are the real needs uh, uh, for the Homeland Security ecosystem so that they can continue to offer and develop uh, new and better solutions. Now, we have solutions today. Everybody will tell you we have solutions for it. But take some of the critical issues around Homeland Security, one that is very near and dear to my heart, uh, money laundering. All right? you know, money laundering is at the root of financing many of the activities that pose a threat uh, to this country and, and to many countries around the world. And yet, with all of the money that we've spent, all of our efforts and well-intentioned efforts, our success rate in, in mitigating money laundering is still measured in sort of the single digits. Why is that? So the council uh, uh, will begin to take a lead in exploring those kinds of issues. So we're going to augment, not move away from our conversations about procurement and how to improve the relationship between government and industry, how to improve the procurement process. But I want to get sort of much, much earlier in the timeline as decision makers are thinking about how should I approach this problem, given that we've had some challenges in mitigating this risk or this particular threat. And that's where I think in this stage of the council's um, life, uh, is an appropriate place to be, number one. Uh, number two, the ecosystem has changed. COVID has shown that. Uh, threats to the homeland are no longer solely the province of the Department of Homeland Security. It takes a broader ecosystem. I mentioned money laundering. You can't re uh, address money laundering without the Department of Treasury and the Financial Network Group, uh, without uh, FBI, and certainly parts of Homeland Security. But we don't develop solutions that address the requirements and needs of those three agencies at a minimum, and certainly there are others as well. So I think that's an important role the council will begin to play. Mm -hmm. And what about your role as the president and CEO of the council? What are your duties? Uh, you know, uh, uh, very simple. It's to serve the members. This is a membership organization. And I make that clear each and every day that we serve the members. And you know, the, the members have to be able to recognize the value of being a part of the council. So my number one job is to make sure that the members receive the highest value for the investment they put in in, in joining the council. You know, beyond that, sure, uh, it's to speak out on issues and talk about things that, uh, that relate to the homeland, broader homeland security enterprise, to talk about some of the ways in which uh, government and industry can improve uh, not only their working relationship, but in the way that government learns more about the marketplace. This is really important to me, and it, it means so much to me. We make it so hard in government for individuals, both decision makers, program managers, contract officers, et cetera, to really learn what's available in the marketplace. We're worried about you know, exposure, undue influence, uh, we don't send people to trade shows. Uh, I'm talking pre-COVID and, and hopefully post-COVID. You know, but we build up all these barriers and we channel the line of communication typically between industry and government through the procurement mechanism. And I've contended for a long time that that's insufficient, 
that people who are you know, sitting in their offices thinking about how do I solve this problem, they need a better understanding of what the marketplace has to offer, A, and B, where solution pathways, again, this term I like to use, can be found. You know, when I was at Homeland Security, uh, I had a firm come to, uh, to visit with me and wanted to talk to me about something they did at, at another federal agency. And I stopped them sort of midway and I said, you know, I don't want to be as good as that agency. Uh, this was a, a financial related issue. I want to be as good here at DHS as the best financial institutions. And, and I said, you know, prior to you coming in, I knew your firm did some work with J.P. Morgan Chase. I want to be as good at them at addressing this problem. So can you bring to me the people who worked on the J.P. Morgan Chase project that won some notoriety, you know, in, in, in resolving and, and advancing some use of, the, you know, the big data and all of that? Because that's where I want DHS to be. I want us to be as good as the best financial institutions. What has surprised you most? It's not been a long, you haven't been in this role that long. I mean, um, we're talking about months. So what has surprised you most since taking this role? The most pleasant surprise is when I have talked to the members one-on-one, no one, I have yet to talk to a single member representative from the firm that has expressed a desire to advance their own internal business development needs. Everybody talks about how do we help improve the state of Homeland Security? How do we improve the relationship we talked about, but also how do we get government uh, to become better aware of the kinds of uh, solutions that are out there that'll help us solve problems? Uh, Not one person has said to me, you know, I really need to get my widget in front of the government and I need the council to help me do that. Uh, this is a community, a collective. Uh, you know, we're, we're not the biggest uh, industry association, uh, but I like to think that the people that are involved who've been attracted to this mission, attracted to the council, represent some of the best people and best minds uh, in our industry, in industry partners. So they behave more like a collective. I am so impressed with the way they communicate with each other I'm sure, you know, they spend a lot of their time competing against each other. But when they're under their sort of the umbrella of the council, they behave as one. And it's a wonderful thing to see people sort of leaving their industry affiliation sort of at the doorstep and really want to focus on how do we make this country safer and what is our role in helping to achieve that. So far in your role, what has been the most maybe exciting or enriching part of your job and experience there? Is it kind of what you just said or a little bit maybe as a nuance there? Well, no, it it, it certainly was that because that was such a welcome. Uh, Not that I had a a, a negative impression. Uh, You know, as I said, I've I've known the council for a long time. Uh, But when you have those intimate conversations and and you can really gauge when somebody's being sincere and they show that and they demonstrate that sort of meeting after meeting, conversation after conversation. So it's not a, just a one-time, uh, oh, I'm all for the, the, the good of, of mankind. No, no, no. Uh, they show it day in and day out. And the, uh, uh, these are all very busy people who give their time and their energy and uh, their ideas uh, for the betterment of that, A. And then B, probably, you know, along with that, is the folks in government 
who come to our briefings to present, who participate in our panels, they have come to recognize over time, and this is a tribute to you know, the leadership that the council has had over these 16 years, they see the council as a safe space to be able to have conversation, uh, to be able to come back and forth, to bring uh, problems to us. We've had already a couple of components of DHS that have come to the council and say, you know, we're noodling over this idea. Can we have a session with your members and, and perhaps get some feedback on, on this item or another item? Uh, and so they're doing it in a public way, uh, representing, you know, all of the requirements and all the, the, the sort of the guideposts they have to follow. But they feel comfortable that in this interaction with industry, they're not being sold goods. Uh, they're not being sold the widgets. Uh, they're really trying to say, are we on the right track? Does this make sense? If we communicate this writ large, will you understand and is there something that we're missing? And because so many of the member firms work not only in this country, but around the world, they've been able to, for example, whether it's something like biometrics, for example, where biometrics are being used in many countries around the world. And here we've been a little bit slow in moving towards integrating biometric controls at airports, for example. And so they were very, very interested in learning, you know, what, what else is out there? Is there something that we're missing? Uh, you know, even I contributed to that conversation by talking about my experience uh, through my international travels, uh, you know, and how I found in other countries ease of entry and exit. Uh, and, 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 you know, clearly using, you know, biometric tools and, and other means uh, to be able to allow that exit entry to be facilitated much, much easier. And of course, now during COVID, although we're encouraging people to minimize their travel, uh, to be able to have a touchless uh, experience uh, going through that process is uh, ever so more important. So uh, just fabulous things. There's so much potential. That's great. So what about your leadership style and approach? I want to know, given your background in both local government, but also coming into the private sector, then going back to federal government, what makes an effective leader? And perhaps you could share with us some of your leadership principles that you aspire to. Yeah, that, that's always a tricky uh, question because um, I've, I've not met leaders who have sort of gone to leadership school. You know, what makes a person a good leader are the people you're leading. They give you the authority to be a leader. Uh, uh, you know, I never felt that I showed up and instantly became leader. Uh, you know, I had to showcase my abilities, whatever they were, good or bad. Uh, you know, my belief system. Uh, I always brought a point of view. Uh, so I, I, I never showed up and said, well, what do we want to do? I always had a point of view and said, you know, here are the things that I've seen. Here's some of the, 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 the challenges we have faced. Here's some of the opportunities we have to, to become better. And I have found that when you confront the workforce that way and you say, what do you think? But at the end of the day, you know, people want their leaders to lead. So I never shied away from saying, okay, I want all of this input. Okay, at the end of the day, somebody's got to make a decision. Uh, we're going to do these five things. And here's how we're going to do it. And it's going to be very transparent. And we're going to be very inclusive. Uh, there were many times within my time at DHS where 
there was something new that we were unveiling, that the predominant belief system of the organization was, oh, well, clearly we're not going to open this up to the entire organization, right? <laughs> and I said, uh, no, in fact, we're going to make it available to everybody, uh, whether it was, uh, you know, some financial system that we were opening up. And they said, but, but I'll be able to see someone else's financials and they'll be able to see mine. And I said, exactly. It is transparency. When people know that you believe in that and you live it, that it sort of empowers you. I always say, you know, you earn it every day. Uh, so it's about being consistent. It's about being fair, having that point of view. Uh, you know, I, I always like to say I didn't show up uh, to figure out what my job was. I showed up because somebody believed that I had something and, and I want to then bring that experience and that ability and the ability to communicate. You know, I don't like barriers. And when I began to have briefings set up for me and I would see who was going to come and brief me, I would say, well, I want to get deeper in the organization. Uh, I don't want to just hear from the chiefs. I want to hear from the people on the front line as well. So give me a mix of people. And I would probably spend more time talking to them than I did to their bosses because I wanted to sort of get the ground truth. And people are very open and they'll, they'll tell you what they see and what some of the challenges are and why they think something hasn't worked. And sometimes things don't work just because they don't believe anybody would support them in doing what they thought was the right thing. So being able to communicate that message and tell people, you know, we're going to move ahead and this is going to be a little challenging. And here's the bargain I'll make for you. If we get flack, I'll own the flack. But if we do well, I want to make sure you're front and center because I reminded people as often as I could, it was never about me. You know, when you, when you serve in these appointed positions and you're, you have the privilege and the honor to serve the, the, you know, your government in this way, it's not about you. It's about them. And I would always tell the teams uh, and all the employees, if you believe in the things that we're doing and if you think they're the right things to do, then it's up to you to keep it going. You have to own it. So if you think this move towards, uh, you know, data integration and big data and analytics uh, is important, it's going to change the way you work, and you have to own it. And, you know, you would find that very quickly as you began to put tools out and the workforce would say, you know, it used to take me all day to do these calculations. Now I get it done in moments, and now I have all this time to do analysis. I can think. I can, I can spend my time uh, d doing higher value work. Uh, and embracing that and telling those stories and sharing it with it. Uh, so, uh, you know, DHS forced me to be more visible as a leader than I ever had been before. Uh, you know, there was almost an evangelical part of my job where you had to sell uh, the confidence of these transformation efforts. Uh, the same thing with Congress and their staff. Uh, you know, I was, you know, very direct. I would, you know, the Congress, they would say to me, what do you need from us? And I would say, I need time and space. I asked for very little new money for anything. Uh, most of what we did, we did organically. Uh, you know, that, I brought that from the private sector. It was, you know, I talked about organic growth and the people didn't understand that concept within a public agency. And, uh, you know, it really was about understanding what our priorities were and this is where, you know, working for Secretary Napolitano was, was so important because she bought into this. She understood it, having been a governor, 
uh, she understood the, the challenges. Uh, we weren't going to have our, any growth to our top line. So it was all about finding what are the real important things we should be doing, make sure we fund those, you know, at the, at the best level we can. And there are going to be some things that are going to fall by the wayside because they're just not as important. Not that they're not important. They're not as important as those things at sort of the top of the list. So rebalancing the books, if you will. Uh, so it was important. So we found money. I didn't go, you know, whether it was for the management cube and other things. I never went to OMB to ask for money either. I said, we'll find it. We'll find it. And we did. We did. I, I had a wonderful team of people to work with. It was very, very privileged to do that. And you've had, uh, I'm sure, many of them on your program. How does the Homeland Security and Defense Business Council work to build better engagement between industry and government? I will ask Raphael Boris, its president and CEO, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Raphael Boris, President and CEO of the Homeland Security and Defense Business Council. So, Raphael, what are some of the key priorities or initiatives that you're pursuing at the council? Well, th there's a couple of things that uh, I think are very important, uh, and I give the, the council staff a lot of credit. You know, during COVID, we've had to adapt. All the industry associations have had to adapt to uh, this uh, now largely virtual world, and, um, and as well as government. And we have found ways to make that work. Uh, but I trust this won't last forever. And we are beginning to think and transition our thinking as to once we get beyond COVID, what the new normal will look like. Uh, for example, I think we'll always now have a virtual presence. We've been able to, and sometimes more than double, the attendance at our events because now uh, 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 folks don't have to travel. Uh, they can be at their desks. They can participate. Uh, and that's been a real benefit. Uh, so we've seen tremendous attendance at uh, many of the council events. Uh, so I don't see the virtual events going away. And what are the, some of the lessons we've learned in, in terms of doing these virtual events? You know, what we have had to do to use the word market, market to, to be able to get people to attend when they were so used to attending in person has taught us a little bit about how, how to better communicate with the members, what that value proposition is. So why should you be attending this event? 
another very important aspect, I'm sure it's true for all the associations, but I can only speak for the council. One of the really important aspects of this group is they enjoy being with one another. They like to be in each other's company. And there is a longing among the council members uh, today for getting back to having in-person events. So once we're able to do that safely, uh, we know that that's a priority. We want to get our members back together. Uh, they like to talk to one another. Uh, they like to push and pull and find ways to address you know, some of the issues of homeland security. They find ways to team amongst each other. So as I said earlier, they, they'll, they'll compete. But they also, because they've developed a rapport, they've developed a trust, uh, they find ways to collaborate as well. Probably the most important thing that we're going to be doing moving forward, Michael, is we're going to expand the ecosystem. So we're going to move beyond uh, a total focus on DHS. And I sort of hinted at this earlier. Uh, as we begin to get into some other areas, I think it's really important that the council show leadership and help facilitate bringing different industry, uh, excuse me, agency partners together around some of these homeland security issues because they don't budget jointly for solutions. Justice, Treasury, and DHS don't sit down and develop joint budgets on how to address the money laundering, for example, or human trafficking. But that's one of the areas where I think we're going to start sharing some leadership by bringing them together to discuss some of these areas, to put the emphasis on the need for the ecosystem to work better together beyond the confines of agency boundaries. So if we want to solve some of these uh, critical homeland security issues, or even if it's, you know, you know, one area we have on the drawing board that is so current is cybersecurity, supply chain cybersecurity. You know, really that downstream, how do you know what's happening in, in the secondary and tertiary suppliers and whether you're secure or not? Uh, but that's not solely the province of DHS. You need multiple agencies to be involved in that. COVID, COVID is a perfect example of it's a, practically a whole of government response. And as you look at how other countries have addressed this COVID issue, many of the countries abroad uh, have employed a much more holistic whole of government approach and have found, in some cases, some better success in mitigating some of the, uh, uh, the impacts of COVID. Uh, but the council, I think, will show its leadership by facilitating some of these cross-agency conversations around homeland security issues in a way that perhaps we've been a little too narrowly focused on just the Department of Homeland Security. I think it's a great point to recognize that when you're talking when when you talk about the council, so Homeland Security and Defense Business Council, it's not Homeland Department, Homeland Security Department, and then the idea of envisioning the council as a real convener of cross agencies, it really dovetails with my next question, which is, and you've touched on a couple of them, COVID being a big one, but what other Homeland Security? issues or threats or the big challenges, if you will, Raphael, what are we seeing out there? Perhaps you can give us an overview of some of the biggest um, near-term threats that we need to kind of think about. 
Well, you know, the, the cybersecurity is, is uh, you know, in the news right now. And, uh, and, 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 you know, whether you listen to this today, tomorrow, or several months from now, it'll continue to be in the news. Uh, you know, those vulnerabilities, uh, because of the way that we have designed our system and our programs and our voluntary nature of compliance, uh, where when you go to some other countries, uh, that is mandated. There are mandated activities. There are mandated uh, requirements that are in place. Um, I, I think here in the U.S., we need to begin to think about that balance uh, between uh, how much needs to be prescribed and how much needs to be voluntary. And we need to find a better balance uh, because the stakes are much, much, much too high. Uh, this country in particular is so vulnerable uh, to uh, exposure, whether it's uh, personal exposure, the number of people have been, uh, uh, been hacked or have had their accounts hacked. Uh, how many times have uh, either do you know someone or yourself has had uh, you know, to close a, 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 a bank card uh, because it's, it's been exposed and it's been found to be exposed? So we just have tremendous uh, exposure here and, and abroad as well. Uh, you know, it, whether it's demographics, whether it's the climate uh, changes, uh, whether it's political instability around the world, all of these factors go into increasing uh, the kinds of threats uh, that uh, affect the homeland. Uh, you know, things that we wouldn't have imagined years ago, where now we worry about, uh, we used to worry about what people were bringing in their, in their suitcase or in their personal belongings as they were entering a uh, flight. Now you have to worry about what infection they may be carrying, what uh, disease they may have that they've intentionally sent people to this country to infect people. Uh, how do you police against that? How do you govern against that? Uh, how do you maintain open borders and balance the need for that kind of security and vigilance? These are some very, very critical issues. Uh, and also, we have to find more economical ways of solving uh, these problems. Uh, where I have been you know, somewhat critical of industry in the past is, you know, sometimes the government puts out some fairly vague or ambiguous requirements and industry is all too eager to go ahead and, and, and attempt to meet that, even though I think at the end of the day, people really know there is no marketplace solution for that yet. Uh, and so a lot of money gets spent, a lot of money gets wasted for very little return on that investment. And so clearly the government has to, has to do a better job and again, they need to understand the marketplace better. Uh, I always say, you know, if the government goes to the marketplace and asks for something that doesn't exist, somebody will find a way to provide it. But it doesn't mean it'll be effective in, in mitigating any, any kind of uh, risk or threat. So uh, government needs to, to find ways to be able to engage with industry beyond the procurement discussion. You know, and I think that's, that's so limiting, so narrow. You know, when's the RFP coming out? What's going to be the time? What are the requirements? What's going to be the valuation factors? And, and a lot of people obsess over that. Uh, and, and we really should be much, much earlier in the life cycle. Why are we pursuing this path? Uh, why are we looking to create an original solution when there's a 90% solution already available in the financial institutions uh, that we can migrate uh, and then build on that? Um, you know, some of the hard decisions we've been unable to make in government about, for example, retiring legacy systems, which also increase our vulnerability. Uh, so there's so many complex things out there 
Uh, but I want to see more sunshine uh, on these kinds of discussions, not less. I want to see, uh, you know, industry, you know, doesn't always get it right. In fact, they have a questionable record at times in producing uh, outcomes. So it works both ways. And the council has demonstrated over time and earned the reputation of being a safe place to have these conversations. Uh, So I want the council to be able to be that platform where we go beyond the procurement discussion. Procurement discussions will always be important. We, you know, government always wants feedback, needs feedback on how well they're doing there. But we've got to get much deeper, much earlier into the sort of beyond even the requirements phase, what I call the conceptual phase. Yeah, I was saying that when you were talking that way, I was yeah, thinking. You know, why, why do we want to solve this problem and what is the problem? Is and it really the problem? Is it really <laughs> yeah, the problem? I mean, and I mean that in the is sense it the root of, cause? Is it the root or, cause? Or is it the cosmetic you know, fringe that we see. And we think that if we address that, somehow it'll trickle down. You know, what are you doing to address as the council, the barriers to innovation in the Homeland Security enterprise? How are you using the platform of the council to to, to maybe foster or facilitate innovation in thinking, conceptual prior to the going to market, or in actual the manifestation of products? What are you doing in that area? Well, this is a really interesting area. So I I spent a little bit of time talking about, you know, some of the challenges inherent in government, the way we finance government, uh, the way we organize government that limits the ability for, you know, a lot of cross-agency activity to occur. Michael, the same thing happens in industry. Absolutely. You know, there's this balkanization also within industry. Um, You know, I told a story about asking, you know, this one firm to bring me the folks that worked on this financial uh, solution. The end of that story was they never did. They never did because they could never really get those people uh, available or interested to come to talk to the federal government. This happens in industry as well. And so part of the opening up also needs to occur Uh, among industry and the members. You know, they are organized oftentimes in ways where you have uh, accounts by department. Not all companies are organized this way. Some are organized more sort of in a matrix, in a a, a more cross-cutting way, but some still approach it that way. So they'll have interesting, innovative solutions that are are being uh, facilitated in their company in another division that they don't know about. So there were many times where I would say to a firm, I read something about what your company is doing in another space. They didn't know it, but I knew it because I read, you know, one of the trade journals or wherever I found out or somebody shared it with me. It's not because I'm that smart. I just, you know, I'm a reader. So I have to, I'm constantly seeking uh, uh, information and that's the way I'm still a reader. Uh, So, you know, industry has to begin to change as well. Uh, they need to be able to, uh, to cross-pollinate within their firms uh, so that, uh, for example, I always used to say to you and others, you know, when people would say, you know, can government operate like a business? And I would say, no, but government can operate more business-like. That's uh, it's been my mantra for, for 25 years. We can. And, and because we rely so greatly from government, we rely so greatly on industry. Industry needs to do a better job of being able to mine that success, those things that are working in other spaces, 
and and come to you know government leaders like my former self and and all of my successors to be able to say you know there's something that's happening in in a completely different space in manufacturing but if applied uh here uh at uh, at department of justice or homeland security or treasury would yield great benefits and here's why we don't get a lot of that we tend to get again uh, you're looking to modernize your financial system. We were just involved in minor- modernizing the financial system to the agency right next to you, and 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 that's not good enough. Uh, so industry needs to and and when we talked about this within the council, uh, they more than get it. They more than get it and recognize that now that's going to require for them to behave differently internally. You know, so whether it's uh, you know the the three letter computer. Uh, firm uh, that uh, uh, that we all know, uh, uh, you know, uh, they need to do a better job. You know, the, the people who sit on the council need to do their homework and learn what else is happening there that might benefit this homeland security space. Uh, you know, when you talk about money laundering and you talk about, you know, you know, it, 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 part of the issue with money laundering is that it's predominantly viewed as a compliance function, and it's not viewed primarily as a law enforcement and intelligence investigative function. And that's important because that determines how you approach it. And, you know, financial institutions, uh, they know how to deal with compliance functions. They budget a certain amount of money for penalties and fines. Uh, They get dinged. They try to negotiate with the government to reduce the impact of the fines. And at the end, they write a check and they pay their fines. But that's not solving the problem. Uh, so that needs to happen in industry as well. And and again, I am so excited that the council members, as I said, more than get it, but they need to begin to to behave differently within their own firms. Uh, to you know, if we're going to ask the government to work across agency, just use those three agencies as an example: Justice, Treasury, and DHS. Industry needs to do the same thing in their firm. They need to know. The, the, the Homeland Security gal needs to know what the justice guy is doing uh, so that they can say, well, are there some synergies here or where they can come back to government. And, and this is something you rarely see where an industry firm will come and say, you know, we have three contracts doing essentially the same thing at three different agencies and you're spending the same amount of money. Can't we leverage that and reduce the cost? and get to a better outcome faster as a result of that. And usually the hang-up is, is the government can't figure out how to do that. Yeah, it's a great segue, Raphael, to get your insight from, we went from how the government can work sort of in a cross-agency manner to how industry can work in the same, similar manner. And I was wondering, how do you see DHS, now I'm getting back to that particular agency, but you could say Homeland Security initiatives and efforts and the national security ecosystem, so both, evolving within the next administration. What do you think it's going to look like? Well, you know, I have no crystal ball. And um, one of the benefits for me uh, to be in the council, which is a nonpartisan, uh, nonprofit organization, is that that nonpartisan label fits me really well uh, because I don't belong to uh, partisan organizations. Uh, so I don't, I don't pay attention to that partisan rhetoric. Uh, what I listen for is, you know, specific, concrete understanding of what the problem sets are, and then uh, try to pay attention to where they see the pathway to the solution is. 
so much of the work that we do in government requires industry to actually be a part of that solution. But we don't involve them in the conversation. So uh, I, would, I would trust that uh, any new administration will begin to recognize that they've got to change the way they speak with industry. Am I concerned about, you know, you know in undue influence and corruption? Of course I am. But do I think it's a, a, as big a problem today as it was 40 years ago? No, I don't. With all of the controls we have in place, uh, with the electronic systems, the ability to use technology to be able to monitor uh, communication, uh, I worry less about that uh, than I did at the beginning of my career 30 plus years ago. Uh, so uh, that needs to be modernized. And I'd love to, to, to hear beyond just saying we're going to uh, be more transparent with industry, uh, really create a different platform for communication with industry, not these blue ribbon panels that get you know CEOs uh, together with government officials and they all say nice things to each other, but it, it doesn't filter down. It doesn't, doesn't change the way we behave. Uh, so that's what I want to see. Uh, and I think, uh, and I, I'm always hopeful. I'm, I'm, I'm never pessimistic. I'm always hopeful uh, that we'll get a um, combination of individuals uh, that will be open to that, uh, that will seek uh, to engage with uh, oversight uh, groups like the GAO and the IG to explain what is it they want to do and why. Uh, you know, I did some you know, pretty far-edged things at DHS. And what you may not know is I used to invite both the GAO and the IG to sit in the room. And I would tell them, I'm not going to give you a speaking role because you can't cross that line. But if you watch how we're making the sausage, you'll better understand where we're going. And hopefully it'll give you a better insight into how to evaluate as opposed to just keeping arm's length having no idea why we're embarking upon certain initiatives and then judging it from afar without any insight. And to their credit, I give uh, uh, the Comptroller General of GAO tremendous amount of credit, Gene Dodaro, who, you know, we didn't know each other, uh, but he invited me in and I sat and I talked and I said, I want to invite your people to sit in my meetings and observe, listen to the conversations, see how we're thinking about doing things uh, because at the end of the day, we both have one thing in common. We want to see government get better. And they did it. And same thing with the IG during Richard Skinner's time. They sat in the room with us. It didn't affect them. They were still wrote reports that at times were uh, you know, critical of, of some of our, uh, our movements. But it was done in a different spirit. And I think we need to do that same kind of thing uh, it, as it relates to how government interacts with industry. What does the future hold for the Homeland Security and Business Defense Council? I will ask Raphael Boris, its president and CEO, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. 
Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Raphael Boris, President and CEO of the Homeland Security and Defense Business Council. It's a member organization, the council. We didn't really chat about who makes up that membership, but whether it's right or wrong, there may be an assumption that most of the uh, commercial organizations involved in your association may be within the Beltway. A, is that assumption correct? B, is there a strategy for pushing beyond the beltway, for getting folks, whether it's, you know, innovative IT organizations or, or just organizations outside the beltway into your organization, expanding that a little bit. I love the question. Um, let me address it from a couple of different ways. Uh, first of all, who, who is the membership? The membership is, uh, you know, largely uh, uh, what you would identify as, you know, the, the, the firms that make up the, the sort of the beltway firms. Uh, but it's an increasingly diverse group of large firms, um, uh, you know, sort of mid-tier firms and the small firms. Uh, the board of the council has approved a set of recommendations uh, which will allow us to identify firms now based on their size because the council recognizes the need to broaden. It's not a numbers game. It's not about just getting more members. It's getting more different types of members to sit at the table because the small firms oftentimes are very hungry and very innovative and bring uh, a nimbleness to solving problems that some of the large firms with their own bureaucracy, it takes time to mobilize and get things going. So we need that 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 mix. Uh, so uh, I have preached the, the need for expanding uh, the presence in the mid-tier and the small firms, and we have done some things uh, to uh, reflect that priority even in our membership dues uh, rates. So we've lowered the rates uh, for the smaller firms and the medium firms uh, to facilitate more uh, uh, you know, acceptance. Because we recognize a small firm at the early part of its uh, life it doesn't have the resources that some of the large institutional firms have, and we want them in. Uh, but we want them in to participate, not to be just a number on a tally of how many members, but we want them to be contributors. We want different types of firms as well. And this is where I'll begin to get into your firm outside the Beltway uh, point. Uh, so, you know, beyond the consulting firms and the, uh, the IT uh, solution firms, uh, we have other sort of niche specialty firms that have been and always have been a part of the council, but we want to see that side of it grow. We want to see different kinds of entrepreneurial for- firms coming into the mix, again, bringing uh, skills and abilities from different spaces, firms that have worked primarily, uh, let's say, in supply chain, and now looking at the federal government as an opportunity for them to grow and expand and bring solutions that they've brought to the commercial world, for example, to manufacturing, 
and helping government and helping the council figure out how do we apply these uh, here in the government space? Because supply chain is an issue uh, for us, whether it's today, the distribution of vaccines, et cetera. Uh, so I want a different mix in as well. Now, you raised the outside the beltway. This is an area that has been vexing me for many, many years. When I was the undersecretary for management, I embarked on this little tour outside of the beltway uh, to speak to businesses, to encourage them to look to the federal government for more opportunities. You know, I went to Toledo, Ohio. I went someplace in, in, in North Carolina. I went in, in California. I started running around, so to speak, uh, in Texas as well to meet with firms and bringing you know, DHS people with me, not just myself. Uh, I'd give the overview and I'd have tables lined up with folks from all the components and encourage you know, these business owners to come and talk to them to understand what it took to do business in the federal government. Uh, you know, how we bought, volumes we bought. You know, one of my favorite stories on that, it was out in San Diego, and I was talking to a small business owner who supplied paper goods. And I had just happened to, to talk to somebody at the Coast Guard, and they told me the volume of paper goods that they acquired on a, on a regular basis. So I said to this business owner, I said, well, you know, here in San Diego, the bases here, the Coast Guard stations, uh, require and I don't remember the number, but this volume of paper goods, you know, paper napkins, paper toilet, paper, all, all the paper goods. And the gentleman looked at me and he said, nobody uses that much paper. And I said, well, we do. And that's what you need to understand to be able to do business. Uh, we're not going to buy three boxes. Uh, we're going to buy 3,000 boxes. And if you can't provide that, then the, the federal government is, is going to be a t- challenging marketplace for you. And it just doesn't make sense for us to sell, I mean, to, to buy products, you know, three at a time. Uh, so there's some inherent challenges. But I was less than satisfied with that tour, if you will, because the more that I spoke to businesses, the more that I spoke, I tell you, my, my speech, if you will, changed with every stop uh, as, as I recognize how increasingly challenging it was for these firms outside of the Beltway to compete fairly for opportunities, even though we, we, we bought more goods out in the field than we did services, uh, it just was a big challenge uh, for us. So uh, we haven't figured that one out yet. Uh, that is a real, real issue. How do you provide economic opportunity for individuals and entrepreneurs and businesses outside of the Beltway uh, to participate in the federal government marketplace? I'm going to spend a lot more of my remaining days thinking about that one. Yeah, and I was wondering, it's a sort of a, a little tangential, but what role does the council have, or is there a role for the council, in identifying the skill sets and technical competencies that will be probably needed in order to secure the homeland, regardless of where it is, in terms of the global issues that we're dealing with? Is there a training approach or a, a competency approach at the council? Yeah, I love the question because it's going to allow me to, to, to give some credit to the council on something we just did this year. We just had our annual awards event uh, in December and uh, we unveiled a new award uh, this year, new recognition called uh, Emerging Influencer in Homeland Security. And what this is, these are non-SES individuals who are nominated by industry 
because industry is working on the front lines with, you know, the GS-15s and below, largely, day in, day out. And we asked our members uh, to identify. We got a bunch of nominations, and ultimately, we couldn't pick one. We had to pick two extremely fine uh, employees of the Department of Homeland Security uh, who represent exactly uh, the kind of values and the skill sets and the abilities and exhibited the leadership uh, that points towards the future. So we gave a, a, a re- retired, uh, uh, I can't remember John Wagner's title from CVP, executive assistant commissioner, et cetera. You know, we, we gave him uh, our Distinguished Service Award, and rightly so. John was a, a, a tremendous public servant during his time at, at uh, CVP and Customs before that. But, you know, that, that recognition looks backwards, looks over a long career and recognizes that achievement. The Emerging Influence Award looks forward. It identifies people who will make a difference in the future, will be a part of the leadership in the future. And this is something that the council members strongly believed in. And we will begin to think about how we apply that same sort of lens to industry. And how do we find people in industry who are, again, tomorrow's uh, uh, you know, major account leaders? And, and how do we make sure they're getting the right recognition, the right training, the right development, so that when uh, the people who serve on my board, for example, step away one day and go to their place of retirement of choice, uh, these folks step right in and continue that legacy and, and perhaps even broaden that legacy. So uh, we applied that lens uh, this year to the federal government workforce at DHS. Uh, over time, we'll broaden that aperture and include the other Homeland Security-related agencies. could be energy, could be the State Department, the whole host of areas. And we want to also then turn that lens internally within industry to make sure that we're, we're, we're setting the same example, looking for tomorrow's leadership in industry. That's a great way to segue to my last question, and that is around the future, Raphael. Uh, what's the future look like for the council? You know, the, the, the future is the council. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, it pl- it plays a very important role uh, in this. In, it's not the only, it's not unique, but every organization has its its own way of being. You know, so they all have their own ex- existential reason for being. And this council, what I'm so proud of, and again, tip of the hat to the, to those that have led it uh, all these years, both on the board. And, and staff, is they've created an identity uh, that is, uh, I think, uh, special. And everybody likes to say they're special. You know, my kids are special. You know, everyone. This, this council, it, it is. It, it's, it's part of their motivation. Uh, you know, they really are altruistic. They really behave as a collective, more so than a collection of individual firms. Uh, they approach... Uh, uh, solutions council-wide as opposed to what's good for Microsoft or IBM. It's what's good for industry. So that's necessary and that's valuable. And that trusted space that they've carved out with government, the credibility that they've developed over these 16 years that I hope to continue uh, as I lead this organization is essential for having these these ideas t- to be able to to nurture and flourish and we don't advocate other than common sense. You know, we don't 
advocate, uh, you know, we, you know, I, I, I don't promote my member firms. I hesitate oftentimes to even mention the names because that's not what they, this is not what the council is about. And that's not what they want out of this relationship with the council. But the value proposition for the members uh, has been good and will continue to strengthen. And as the council gets better, and we should all want to get better. So as this council gets better, I think government correspondingly will improve as well because it's a mutually beneficial relationship. I had one follow-up, if I could. Do you, does the council collaborate with other councils, other industry associations? The answer is a, is a quick yes. Uh, we have done joint reverse industry days with some other organizations. Uh, and it's, it's, it's something that um, I have in mind, uh, but moving even beyond other industry associations. There are other organizations here in town uh, that, uh, you know, call them think tanky type of organizations that we will also collaborate with because we want to also promote ideas. And some of the organizations in this town that are idea generators make, I think, natural partners for the Homeland Security and Defense Business Council as we look to explore some of the things that you and I talked about today that I certainly don't have all the answers, but in collaboration with these other partners, and we will establish partners. You know, you know, I am a good friend of the Partnership for Public Service. You know, to me, they're a natural partner of the Homeland Security Defense and Business Council uh, around the notion of good government. You know, some of the other uh, organizations, the Atlantic Council, which recently put out a report uh, looking at DHS, is another natural uh, partner uh, for the council. So it's industry associations, absolutely, and we do where it makes sense do things jointly, uh, but we'll collaborate even beyond that because we want to be also uh, in the idea generation business. That's a wonderful way to end. Raphael, thank you for coming back on the show. It's great to have you back. Um, and thank you for your work. Thank you for having me. It's a tremendous pleasure to be back with you. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Raphael Boris, President and CEO of the Homeland Security and Business Defense Council. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.